This week on Across the Peak, Rich and I tell you how to be the ultimate recycler and refill your own beer bottles. Welcome to the Across the Peak podcast, the show where Rich and Justin discuss preparedness, the birds and the bees, guns, history, tattoos, and well, basically all the stuff your old man should have taught you. Rich Brown's a failed 70s child actor, retired Marine Corps officer and former cop. Justin Carroll, he's a washed up former special operator, half-assed author, and adventurer at large. Learn life skills, harden the fuck up, and become a dangerous man. Get your damn boots on, gents, because we're going across the peak rich what's going on man oh my goodness man i am excited to get into this as you know it's not something that i know much about and uh, i'm so excited to have commando joining us once again <laughs> hey guys well uh yeah we had to get kai on man because um well she knows probably more about this than I do, and I don't know. I figured it'd break up the monotony a little bit. Well, sometimes journalists got to reach out to those specialists, man, find out how to do stuff. That's right, man. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> Not having to drink more beer than water, so. <laughs> <laughs> what's water? <laughs> uh, so what's going on, buddy? What have you been up to? Uh, let's see. So this is kind of, I guess this is good, good place to talk about what I've been up to this week. Uh did a little uh, vehicle PMS in the dark last night with my son. Thought that he, he wanted to put headlamps on and check his tires out. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever's ATP to you, bro, let's do it. Uh, you know, I don't know that I mentioned it. You know, uh, when I went to Wyoming, that coyote hunt, we did some uh, an EDC hike. And I think that's something you did recently. And I would tell you, put that thing on and take it on a hike in the snow up to your freaking knees uh, up a mountain, you know, and figure out if that's, if you got the right configuration, if the weight is right, uh, if you got stuff that you don't need in there, uh, I think it's a phenomenal idea. And the last thing that I did was yesterday I shot an IDPA match and uh, had a stage win, as you know, I sent you the video of that. <clears throat> so overall, not a bad match. I had a procedural, which hurt me and Hit a non uh, hit a non threat and sorry sorry bro sorry to that target that got shot <laughs> my bad but uh, other than that man it's been a pretty good week how about you guys yeah we've had a we've had a pretty busy week too we did uh, we did our vehicle PMs um, as always that's pretty much a given uh, we did an EDC hike it wasn't anything like yours we weren't in knee deep snow or anything like that but we did a well, we were in almost knee-deep water a couple times, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I agree. It, it was a really good exercise for us, especially we're going to be traveling soon with um, just our EDC bags, and it was a good exercise to um, see what it's like to walk around for a while with those on and make sure that it's we got the right stuff in it. Yeah, and pretty much now we're configured exactly the way we're going to be traveling, which means a couple different things taken out, a couple other things put in, like our travel adapters and, I don't know, Stuff like that, stuff that's not normally doesn't make the cut for the EDC bag, but going to be a little bit slightly modified for travel. Uh, we also made some cheese this week. We made some uh, homemade mozzarella cheese, and that was a that's a pretty involved undertaking for a couple hours. You're paying a lot of attention to that, and of course, we brewed some beer. Right on, man. You guys have been ATPAF. That's awesome, dude. Making cheese, making beer. My God, you got a little. 
factory over there. <laughs> well, like two weeks before Christmas, Kai looked at me and she's like, hey, this year, let's make, because we, I mean, we make our own like pasta sauce from scratch. We make dough from scratch. She's like, hey, this year, let's make our own cheese from scratch. And uh, I was like, roger that. Let's do it. So I ordered the, uh, the ingredients there. And yeah, we've been, we've been doing that. It made some pretty tasty cheese, man. Well, and I saw on Instagram where you guys have uh, put up some pictures of the stuff that you were making recently. Was it uh, sauerkraut? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we may, we always have that in the fridge just ready to go, and it is so easy to make and well worth it. <laughs> Dude, yeah, it's it, all you need is a head of cabbage, or the only ingredients are a head of cabbage and some salt, and it's going to be fresher. It's going to be better than anything you buy in the store. A head of cabbage is like two bucks. And you need maybe half a tablespoon of salt or something like that. That's that's it, man. And it's 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 the, it's the jam. Yeah, <laughs> it's really really good. We always have two or three jars of that, like either going or in the fridge or uh, or somewhere, man. <clears throat> yeah, did you guys write an article and on that? You did, didn't you? Let me let me yeah let me throw a plug out there for that. If the listener wants to know how to do that, I wrote a like start to finish soup to nuts like how to do it article. And there's plenty of other articles out there on the internet. Just go. Look for one, but if you've never tasted homemade sauerkraut, man, there's no better way to, to try it out than make it yourself. Yeah, and another one is that uh, that kick-ass hash that you guys put on. That, the photos of all that stuff is on Instagram, guys, and <laughs> Justin and Kai have been putting articles out on how you can have that at home. So check it out if you haven't already. Um, it looks <laughs> I'm actually starving, so that hash, I'm looking <laughs> at it right now, man. I'm getting hungry thinking about it. It's real good, man, and that was the result of a happy accident. I, I think I've talked about that before, but one Sunday morning we're up, and we're like, what the hell are we going to have for breakfast? There's like an old hamburger patty in the fridge, <laughs> like a couple eggs and whatever, and one potato. And <laughs> uh, so that's that's what happened, and we've refined it a little bit since then, but yeah, that's, that's basically it, man. So what are you drinking, buddy? I am drinking uh, a carnivore. Uh, carnivore is California varietal. They make, uh, I don't know, the Cabernet is the, the one that my wife and I really like. And I don't know if I've talked about this on the show before, but it's really freaking dark. It's got a great mouthfeel, nice chocolatey, raisiny, blackberry flavor. Uh, not really harsh on the tannins. So overall, just a really good wine, man. Nice man. And for the price point, I mean, I think it's like I don't know, ten to thirteen dollars a bottle. So it's it's easy on the pocket and uh, and just really tasty. Right on, dude. What are you guys drinking? Uh, we're drinking a um, IPA called Resilience from Sierra Nevada, and um, it, I, it it's got a whole background to it. But it's as far as it, the taste goes, it's it's real good. I'm not an IPA drinker, and it's a pretty smooth drink. Um, I definitely went back for more. Um, but Justin can tell you the the cool background of this beer. Yeah, so our, our local beer store has a little little tap room, and they actually have this on tap this week. And we've been keeping our eye out for a few weeks for it and haven't seen it anywhere. And she just checked their website, and they're like, oh, we got Resilience on tap this week. So we went down there Friday night and had a, had a pint of it. And we ended up buying a six-pack of it, too. So Sierra Nevada is in Chico, California. Their primary brewery is which is right near Paradise, California, which is pretty much destroyed by the by the campfire, uh, which is, the I think, the worst wildfire in California's history as far as property destruction and loss of life and whatever else. So they released this beer, and they released the recipe to breweries all over the country and said, uh, hey, we're brewing this. 100% of the proceeds are going to go to people that suffered some sort of loss in the campfire. 
Uh, so if you want to get hammered and contribute to a good cause, uh, this beer would be an awesome way to do it. And just throw this out. They've also, the recipe is, is just out there. Uh, so some dude took the recipe, refined it down to a 12 gallon batch. If you're a home brewer that can do all grain brewing, you can make this stuff in your, in your own home. Damn. I love that, man. I love that. Uh, you know, the, the fact that they're giving those proceeds cause those, those people work their ass off and, uh, I, I know a guy who's a police officer out there, and you know he was telling us that uh, you know you're, you're just driving. You know these police officers and, and firefighters, you know they're affected by it too. They live in those communities, and they're a lot of times they're helping people as they're driving by their smoldering ruins of their homes. So, man, God bless them out there. Yeah, that's got to be a that's got to be a tough situation, man. But yeah, if you see a six pack of resilience. Uh, it's about 65 IBUs. It's not the hoppiest IPA I've ever had. It's definitely an IPA, but we both found it to be actually not that bad at all for, for people that are not IPA people. So um, I know we wanted to talk, before we get into the home brewing, brother, uh, Kai, you were just want to talk about the store? Yeah, let's talk about the store. So um, we've, we've got some new products in there since the last time I talked about it, although this will probably be transparent to the listener because we're recording pretty far ahead here, but... Um, yeah, we've got, I think four different men's t-shirts all with the ATP logo, uh, on the front and on the back, some quote from the show, like live vicariously through yourself or hashtag ATP AF or competent and dangerous. We've got ladies t-shirts. We've got a ladies racerback tank that Kai loves. Where's the, the CrossFit gym all the freaking time. We've got coffee mugs. Uh, the, uh, the tote and quick little story about the tote. Um, it is, <laughs> it is Jake tested, Jake approved, but not Jake proof. So, uh, we went to, actually Friday night when we went down to the beer store to, to get that resilience, we happened to leave that tote sitting on the counter and, uh, you want to tell them what happened? Well, it's no longer a tote. It's, <laughs> it's not going to retain any goods that you put in it. <laughs> Yeah, now it's a shredded pile of cotton string. So, but it was delicious. <laughs> so yeah, we've got that delicious tote on the. <laughs> so uh, yeah, check out the store. Um, the uh, go to acrossthepeak dot com. Click any link that says uh, store or shop or whatever it says, and it'll get you there. You can show off your ATP pride and support the show at the same time. And we really appreciate that yes we do and uh are we are we gonna you know jake is such a character man i'm cracking up uh i can't wait till we talk about the brew that you guys named after jake it's, it's awesome <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think uh i think jake is gonna be the official mascot of of the show man yeah <laughs> okay so uh where do we where do we get our hands around a topic such as uh you know why one might want to consider home brewing i mean where do you start with that well, we, I mean, obviously we drink, <laughs> we drink quite a bit of beer and, uh, that means we spend quite a bit of money on beer. And I think our impetus came from, um, in addition to just liking to make things from scratch at home and, and feeling pretty accomplished when we do that, uh, we were spending a lot of money on beer and we did, we crunched some numbers and, um, it was going to save us like $6 a six pack or something like that. I forget what $6 a case. I think it was. Um, so we were like, yeah, let's, uh, let's see how this goes. And if we can <laughs> supplement some of our beer and save a little bit of money, that'd be great. And then it just turned into this like really, um, awesome hobby where we get to explore, uh, different kinds of beer that we've liked or heard about 
and get creative. And I mean, there's a ton of reasons, but I think that's that you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that I think is why we started. Yeah, there's as we'll talk about later, there's a little bit of upfront investment, but we well, also just the plain old fact that it's fun. And and like I said, we really, really like beer. So being able to get involved in it at a lower level than just going out and buying something that someone else had made seemed really appealing to us. And once we got into it, we realized this is a just tremendously educating experience because you get to learn, like now we, man, I've been to brewery tours and they're like, and this is the lottering ton and this is the, this is where the sparge water goes and whatever. And I'm like, what the hell are they talking about, man? Um, I mean, it kind of makes sense to me, but uh, being able to do it and put your hands on it, like now if we go to a brewery tour, and now when we go to breweries, we don't really even bother with the tour. We can kind of like look through the glass at the floor and be like, oh, okay, got it. Um, but y- you learn the impact of different ingredients, the impact of you know, uh, fermenting at different temperatures, the impact of all these very, very minor changes and, and the process, really neat experience as far as learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely makes you look at, at beer a different way because we certainly still go out and get new beers and try new beers, but um, I think we're looking at those beers with a different level of appreciation now. Oh, I could only imagine, you know, like you said, I've been to several brewery tours and it all looks like magic, you know, like I have no idea what this big shiny thing does, but uh, yeah. you, you can tell me 10 times it doesn't make any sense, but I guess doing it at home, you're like, oh, that's where that goes. That's why yeah, that does absolutely. that. And doing so, it and, at home. Oh, go ahead, Rich. No, I'm sorry, brother. I was going to say, you know, and, and the fact that, you know, you guys do that activity together, it's one more thing that you guys share together, right? Oh, yeah. And it's a great exercise for a relationship. It's definitely a bonding experience for us. I I think for others, it it could be, (laughs) it's one of those make or breaks. If you can brew together, (laughs) pretty Mm -hmm. solid relationship because it's a lot of communicating. It's, it's, we tag team in the kitchen. And when you have a small kitchen like we do, um, if you can't flow together in the kitchen, if you can't um, sort of anticipate what somebody needs and, and, um, and sort of time manage yourself, it's going to be a problem, but we've we've seemed to have, have boiled this down to a pretty efficient process, and so um, high fives to us. Because, <laughs> <laughs> but from what we hear, uh, one of the consistent stories across the board is we we find that we run into a lot of people that are like, oh, I homebrewed in college, or oh, I homebrewed a few years ago and did like five batches and then quit or whatever. One common theme that we hear, at least from married people, is oh my God, my wife hated the way it made the house smell or my wife hated, like it made the kitchen messy and like basically locked the kitchen down for four hours or whatever. So um, for us, it's a bonding experience. It could be a huge wedge issue in your relationship if your spouse is not on board. I can only imagine, bro. I mean, like, uh, you know, I don't know, man. My wife and I have thought about doing this, but, you know, she's pretty particular about her kitchen and turning it into a brewery may be a bridge too far for her. But let's talk about another thing that I think you can probably, uh, it might be a good idea for the listener who's considering this while they might want to get into it. You know, it it seems like a, a great opportunity to recreate some of the beers that you really enjoy. What do you guys think? Yeah, so, and this runs the gamut, man, from things like we're brewing one right now that you buy the recipe kit that is basically a duplicate of a beer that we really like. They it, Well, it's Fat Tire, and they spell in their kit, they spell fat with a PH and tire with a T Y R E. So they're not copyright infringing or whatever, 
but we'll see how it actually turns out. But the results are supposed to mirror, you know, a popular beer. Uh, on the other side of things, we sometimes just take a swag at it and be like, okay, we want this uh, porter to taste like death by coconut. So it's we're starting with a pretty strong backbone porter. Let's put some chocolate and coconut in it and see what happens and go from there. And what has been the experience with uh, trying to recreate those beers? Are you in the neighborhood or what? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're never going to be spot on unless we keep doing this, you know, and really fine tuning it. But I think that we, you know, we um, recently made a vanilla cream ale um, that we called Yellow Dog after Pepper. And it's it's one of our strongest beers. It's really good. And that was inspired by a beer that Justin drank. Yeah, they're, it, it's a beer from Mother Earth Brewing, and um, I think they're in San Marcos, California. I've actually been to their brewery. They make a beer called Cali Creamin. It's a vanilla cream ale, and man, every time I'm in California, I'm going to seek that thing out and have one. And you, you can't get it basically anywhere west of or east of Utah, uh, and anywhere north of I'm going to say probably Oregon. Like they keep it, they don't distribute very far, so it's really really hard to find that beer outside of like the southwestern United States. So up here in Rochester, it we can't get it. We're not going to get it. So basically, I'm like, let's try to make something close to it. And, you know, I don't know if probably if we put them side by side, they probably wouldn't taste the same. But like she said, Yellow Dog is one of our absolute favorite beers that we've ever made. And, and uh, it came from some of the cheapest ingredients aside from the like vanilla beans some of the cheapest ingredients of any beer we've made. So we're probably going to do that one again. And that's a really good example of we found a, a kit that was a cream ale and then we added, you know, ingredients to it. We added vanilla beans and, um, and created this, this really solid beer that we're constantly going, like reaching for in our fridge. So it's pretty cool. What I like about that, Kai, is the fact that, you know, when you mix these ingredients and you and you take a little bit of risk, like adding chocolate and coconut to try to recreate something like that, you know, you, you have to be patient because you're not going to find out if it if it went well for several weeks. So what's the length of time on that? Yeah, we, so um, it depends. I think there's some six-week cycles. There's, I think, a couple eight-week cycles that we've had um, where you've got a couple rounds of, of fermentation that take a couple weeks, and then we bottle condition our beer, which means it has to sit in the bottle um, with the priming sugar to, to get that carbonation set up. So it, it takes a long time. We can, you know, as we're going through the stages, smell it, and, and it we definitely get a little bit of a hint from that as to where the beer's going. But you never know until you taste it. And we've certainly popped open a beer on that that opening day and sort of looked at each other like, is this is this what we were going for? And then mm-hmm. what we found, and we can talk about it later, but what we found is sometimes we'll let something sit a little bit longer and develop a little bit more and find that that really helps the flavor. Um, but you're right. It's kind of like, you know, we're sitting here staring at um, a coconut chocolate porter right now that looks amazing, and we can't taste it for another three or four weeks. So, And we're calling that one uh, Coconut Pete, also in honor of Jake. Uh, we're back around to renaming another beer after Jake because when we go to the vet on the forum, when they ask what color, we say he's coconut colored. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, so talk, talk to me about, um, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think you were talking about it was going to save you like six bucks a case. I mean, is this economical enough for someone to like, it, it's worth it to get into? I mean, Justin, I know you mentioned there's some up costs 
some costs up front, but I mean, is this really economical? I'm going to say you save more than six bucks a case. I don't remember what our math came out from, but around here, we're probably paying between ten and fifteen dollars for a six pack of beer. So you're looking at forty bucks for, a, let's say, ten bucks a six pack. You're looking at forty bucks for a case. One of our five gallon batches, we're going to end up getting about two cases of beer out of. So that would be eighty dollars if you bought it in the store. We've probably got somewhere between thirty and fifty dollars worth of ingredients into it. So we're probably saving twenty, thirty, twenty or thirty dollars. Uh, for two cases of beer. So that's probably about $15 a case or so. Uh, you got to realize you got some upfront costs that you have to absorb and whatever. But yeah, overall, man, and you know, we take we take some other little steps to save money. We don't buy empty beer bottles. We, when we were leading up to this, we started saving every beer bottle that came through our house, peeling the labels off those things and cleaning them and use, reusing those, which we'll talk about a little bit later as well. But so we don't have to buy beer bottles. There's there's little, you know, money saving steps you can take here and there to uh, to get your costs down. But yeah, you can make this really really economical. And we jumped in with um, like a five and six gallon uh, carboy. So we're bre- brewing like five gallons of beer at a time. Um, there's definitely smaller options. There's like a one gallon option that you can buy kits and recipes for, and that. Um, is a good way to dip your toe in if you're not ready to commit to mm-hmm. that kind of volume. But that's probably you're, you're probably not going to have that economy of scale, and it's probably mm-hmm. not going to you know you're not going to save a dime on that. Right. It's going to be because you yeah. want to do it. So um, I imagine you know sharing this with those that you care about is probably something pretty cool to see if, if watch them enjoy it, right? Definitely, man. And uh, it, nothing is more gratifying than sending someone home or having someone over. Um, well, two, two stories. We had someone over recently and, you know, she got here, opened up the fridge, like, Hey, here's the five things that we have. And she's like, well, give me one of your beers. Cause this is the only place I can get it. And then I think she had two more of the same thing, man. And that was really, man, that really made us feel good. Like, yeah, we're making some good stuff. If she, she could go for anything in the fridge and I'm trying to push death by coconut on her, but she's going <laughs> back to our stuff. And then, um, you know, I had a buddy over a few weeks ago that I sent home with a six pack and he texted me uh, like two days later, like, Hey man, this is really good. And that felt awesome, dude. Like I didn't expect to hear anything back. You know, we sent him home with some food and stuff too. Didn't expect to hear a thing back, but. And even we, you know, with the holidays being very recent, we um, saw some family members that we weren't anticipating seeing and you run into that. Do you buy a gift? What do you do? And we we brought a, a six pack of stuff, a mixed six pack, and sent them home with that. And it felt really good. And it felt, f- I think they appreciated the thoughtfulness of that. And I don't. That was pretty cool to send them on the road with a six pack of our stuff. I love it. Now, the final thing that I wanted to kind of ask you guys, someone who is not a home brewer like myself, but maybe the listener, you know, has had some experience. Uh, doing something, recreating. Like for me, it's been reloading. I used to reload a lot, and I would imagine that you know, like me and my my buddy Mike Seeklander, we used to really kind of go down the rabbit hole on reloading. Um, you know, getting different bullet weights with different powder combinations and playing with all kinds of stuff. Have you you guys really found a way to nerd out on on uh, homebrewing or what? Well, you can basically geek out as far as you want to or as little as you want to. So if you're doing extract brewing, which we'll talk about in a little bit, it's it's a much, much simplified process. And, and in full disclosure, that's exactly what we're doing is extract brewing. 
you buy the recipe kit, you follow it to the letter, you'll make really solid beer. Uh, it's not going to win any awards or, or whatever, but you'll make a really solid, really drinkable beer. Um, you can, you can get a little bit crazier with it. You can modify recipes. You can say, if, yeah, I don't like this flavor profile. Let's put this other thing in or, you know, our, uh, our vanilla Porter and our vanilla cream ale, both of those, we just basically split a couple of vanilla beans, scraped the seeds out and threw that in the carboy with it, modifying that recipe slightly. Um, but also having some understanding of how that's going to work with the flavor profile and that. Or if you really want to get nuts with it and you're doing uh, all grain brewing, man, you don't even need a damn recipe. You can say, I want, I don't know, five pounds of biscuit malt and five pounds of Munich malt and a pound of chocolate malt and these hops and this yeast and whatever and build your own damn recipes. And that's where you really, really can take it to the nth degree. Roger that, man. Presumably you could do that with extract brewing too, but uh, you could really, really get as far down this rabbit hole as you want to go. Is that a pill that you do as well, Kyle? Oh, yeah. I like it. I mean, I, I'm a rule follower at heart. Um, <laughs> so I like getting the recipes and sort of um, following the process. But I think the more we've done this, the more I understand the process, the more I can see where little variations in the process are going to get us big payouts. So adding vanilla, adding coconut, um, doing different things to it. I, I, I love that we can sort of make it our own. And I, I mean, I approach it baking that way, approach cooking that way. So I like that we're sort of translating it into beer brewing as well. Okay, so hopefully we got the listener all uh, hot and bothered about uh, considering home brewing. Where do we go from here, guys? I guess no uh, discussion about this would, would be complete without at least a tiny bit of history of beer. And, and Rich, this we should do a whole episode... Hell, man, we could probably do a suite of episodes on the history of beer. Um, one of the things that the Mayflower ran out of on its journey to what would become America was beer. Um, and actually, I think that pre- precipitated an early landing in a place that was maybe less than ideal to land at because they were out of beer. But anyhow, uh, beer is basically the result of live yeast floating around in the sugar created from the sugar that's extracted from malted barley. So these yeast eat that sugar and then they poop alcohol and CO2. And that is what makes beer, man. Sounds delicious. (laughs) 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 When you say it like that, like, "Mm, let me go get one right now. So uh, beer is one of the oldest drinks that, that humans have produced. Pretty much every civilization has produced beer in some form or fashion, whether it's a very refined beer like you see today or you even saw several hundred years ago to cultures that are still making very, I would say, rudimentary type beers like, uh, you know, the South American tribes that will chew corn off the cob and chew it up and spit it into a bowl. And that's their way of like, um, you know, extracting the sugars and whatever into this liquid. Pretty much every culture on earth has had some form or fashion of beer. And it's very closely like the, the, origination of beer is very, very closely tied to the domestication of cereal grains. So basically, if you want to look at the beginning of beer, you have to find the beginning of basically farming, basically an agricultural societal model of, of let's say, let's not hunt and gather and migrate with the herds anymore. Let's stay in this one place and grow this grain. And no one really knows if beer or bread came first out of that. No one knows if beer was the result of a bread-making accident, like someone, you know, 
ground all their, like cracked all their uh, barley for bread and then forgot about it and left it in a pot and it got rained in and some live yeast fell into it and made this drink that made people really happy. Or if someone had all this spent grain from making beer and then that somehow got too close to the fire and puffed up to this like tasty looking thing you could eat. No one really knows what happened first, but back to Kai's reference about baking beer and bread are incredibly closely related, man. There's, there's a, like you got that initial grain. You could basically choose to take that one way and make beer or the other way and make bread. And I think it's really interesting too. It It's about this being closely tied to the domestication of grain. It's not just that you've got, agriculture that's letting you produce the grain it's that you've got a sedentary society that gives you the time to actually process it so with hunter gatherers you were on the move it was a mobile civilization and now you've got not only the the ingredients for it but you've got the time to actually brew and those are the that's what you need to be able to create beer is is the good ingredients and time and I, you know, looking at that on a very, very micro scale, Rich, uh, I don't know if you know this. I actually lived in an RV for several months and I, I was like, yeah, beer brewing is not anywhere in my immediate future because you have, like Kai said, you have to have space. You have to be in the same place. Uh, and if you're trying to make good beer, you have to have like a relatively consistent temperature, which means, you know, air conditioning or heat or whatever. So, yeah, this is really closely tied to this agrarian lifestyle where we're staying in the same place for long periods of time. Uh, That's interesting. I wonder if, um, you know, those yeast strains from 7,000 years ago or however far this goes back are still the ones we use today. I mean, I wonder if there's any way that science could prove or disprove that. I don't know. That would be fascinating to find out. So there's a brewery called Dogfish Head in Delaware, I believe. Yeah, Delaware. Dogfish Head is kind of famous for all these super weird beers, uh, like Midas Touch, where they, it's got honey in it, and I, I'm not going to try to tell the story of that one, but one in particular I'm thinking of, I can't remember what it's called, but basically some divers, you know, recovered some bottles of beer from a shipwreck from the 1700s, and they cracked open that beer, and the yeast cultures were still alive in the in those bottles or of beer, and they recreated that recipe they looked at it at a molecular level and they recreated that recipe and they actually sell stuff like that Uh, if you can find anything by dogfish head or or do a little bit of research on them a lot of their beers are crafted on ancient recipes or i don't know man they're always trying to come up with some novel approach to uh brew i guess kind of historical beers if that makes sense yeah, just because it's historical, it might taste like crap, but it'd be interesting to try it, though, you know? <laughs> yeah, very likely. Well, that's the feedback a lot of people have had on some, <laughs> on some of these. All right, so where do we go from here, guys? Well, um, I, I think just one other quick thing on beer, uh, specifically on the history that influences the way beer is still made today, is the Reinheitsgebot. Um, Kai, do you want to talk about that? Um, well, I, <laughs> I feel like you probably know more about it than I do, but um, it's basically a German... Uh, beer purity law that defines what beer is made of, what ingredients go into making actual beer, and that's water, barley, and hops. Um, yeast, obviously, we've talked a little bit about yeast, is a key ingredient, but it's not mentioned in that law because it wasn't really understood what it did yet and how it contributed to it. Um, and I think that it was because yeast sort of um, was naturally occurring on the on the 
barley. Um, and so it made its way into the recipe without anybody really understanding that it was there. So, yeah, the oldest, it doesn't occur on the barley, but the oldest uh, type of beer we have is Lambics. Have you ever had a Lambic, Rich? No, I don't know that I've ever heard of it. Uh, so it's a it's a Belgian style, and they're, they have a reputation for kind of being maybe a little on the sour end, maybe a little, like kind of some funky kind of beer flavors. And basically, Lambics are wild yeast beers, and you put your mash into a, or your wort into just an open-topped barrel, and yeast fall into it out of the sky. And I'm going to, or out of wherever the hell yeast live. <laughs> and this got refined out of, uh, over time, people would develop things like they would have a special stick that they always stirred their wort with. And, you know, uh, historians and I don't know, whoever studies this stuff, anthropologists have, have kind of surmised that over time, that stick probably builds up a pretty reliable culture of yeast. So if you're, if you're stirring all your batches with the same stick that probably gets handed down from generation to generation, you pr- that probably is what allowed us to refine yeast without even knowing it and produce more consistent outputs. Um, I'm going to reference a book here that, well, hell, we'll make this the book of the week. It's called Cooked by Michael Pollan. And I had intended to do another Michael Pollan book this week, but Cooked covers four elements that we use to um, that we use to produce food: fire, which he talks about just roasting meat over fire, like humans have done since well before recorded history. He talks about water, uh, the process of cooking stuff in water, like braising foods. He talks about air, which is bread, and then he talks about fermenting, which uh, he refers to as earth. But on the air thing, he, he goes deep, deep in the weeds on sourdough because we, um, and boy, there's a big sidetrack I could go on here with kind of the animosity between the English uh, royalty and the Irish because the Irish ate potatoes, which came directly out of the ground, with, and you ate them with basically no processing, but bread was this whole conversion process of this beautiful grass that grows, and then you have to grind that down into something and literally transform it into something that looks nothing like what it originally was. And that was a big part of the English disdain for the Irish and their lack of any kind of uh, mounting, any kind of meaningful response during the potato famine and that sort of stuff. But anyhow, in San Francisco today, no one knows where yeast for sourdough actually comes from. Um, No one has a clue. Huh. That's fascinating, man. That that could be an episode right there. So anyway, uh, (laughs) (laughs) that's my plug for the book of the week. (laughs) Right on, brother. Uh, Let's talk about... um, Home brewing is it? Uh, I guess before we get into the nuts and bolts, man, is this something I can do legally, or are the cops going to kick in the door and take me away? What are they going to do? Well, I guess my answer is I believe so. Uh, so <laughs> home brewing was banned in 1920, along with prohibition, um, or as a side effect of prohibition. And then when prohibition was repealed, no one thought to specifically legalize uh, home brewing again. Home brewing was still federally a crime. All the way up until 1978, uh, when Jimmy Carter legalized home brewing, dude, we watched a what was that thing called? We watched Brewmaster. A, yeah, we watched yeah. a documentary called Brewmaster that was it's on Netflix. Netflix, highly recommended if you want to know a little bit about beer and the craft beer movement and that sort of thing. But I I didn't know this until we watched that movie. Jimmy Carter legalized home brewing. Can you imagine trying to get that law passed today? Oh my God! It would be a fight, and 
Senate appropriation bills would be tagged to it and building bridges to nowhere in the middle of, you know, Alaska or God knows what. <laughs> yeah, throwing a big pork subsidy for North Carolina and a new Air Force base for Wyoming and whatever, and then maybe, uh, maybe it'd get passed. Anyhow, th- I thought that was, I thought that was pretty neat, man. This uh, has only been around for really not that long. And even though it's federally legal, it still might not be legal in your st- it probably is. I think it's I believe it's legal in all 50 states, but I'm not 100% sure on that. So check your state laws and local laws first. Um, federal under federal law, you can brew 100 gallons of beer per year per individual in your household or per adult in your household. So Kai and I can brew 200 gallons a year. Uh, some states limit that. Connecticut is 50 gallons per individual. Many, many states uh, regulate the alcohol by volume or alcohol by weight in your beer. Um, I think uh, I think I looked at North Carolina's specifically. I think they limit you to 15% max. Um, that's just the one that stands out in my head because that was the first one in the list they gave. Um Brewers in Idaho have to use, quote, native-grown ingredients, but they don't say if it can, has to be only native-grown ingredients. If you just have to have one thing that's native-grown, they don't define native-grown, so that's kind of weird. Um, Utah didn't legalize home brewing until 2009. Oklahoma didn't uh, legalize it until 2010. And Alabama and Mississippi didn't legalize it until 2013, which is kind of nuts to me that that's only been legal for about six years in those states. Um, and there's still, especially start thinking about Alabama, Mississippi, the deep South, there's still dry towns and dry counties. Uh, so if you're in one of those, you may not be able to homebrew also. Yeah. And we talked about this before, man. I'm sure there was a lot of people in Alabama and Mississippi that back in 2012, they didn't know they were breaking the law. And we've talked about this before. The average American, you know, commits like what, four felonies a day without knowing (laughs) about it or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Something like that. So I'll post the link to this in the show notes, but I got all this information from a really good resource at homebrewersassociation.org. They have a homebrewers rights page with a dropdown where you go to any state and they will give you a rundown of that state's laws and, and kind of an interpretation of it. So I've, I'd really recommend you check that out if you're thinking about taking up homebrewing. Right on. Speaking of taking up homebrewing, what's kind of the startup costs and Let's say I'll I'll decide to do it. Uh, What's the first kind of things I need to be thinking about? So the first thing you need to get is uh, the equipment that you need to do it. And um, it's not too bad as far as taking up space. We we started with two glass carboys, um, which are the big tanks that you're going to hold your um, liquids in. And um, we've got a five-gallon and a six-gallon. We also have a bottling bucket that has a spigot on the bottom of it. And then um, a couple um, little smaller pieces of tubing, um, a siphon, um, a large uh, funnel, and um, some um, sanitizer. We're going to talk a lot about sanitizing stuff. And um, the startup cost for us was closer to like $250 to get all that together. But now we have it, so we don't have to pay that every time we we brew. Um, but you can start up for as little as a hundred if you're getting one of those smaller kits. Um, and, and there's also, I mean, we, we bought it in a kit, but you can also go to home brewing stores and sort of buy pieces, um, ad hoc. Uh, it just was more economical for us to, to buy everything together. And then, um, beyond that, you'll, you'll be spending money as you get kits or ingredients. And we, as Justin said, we do, um, extract brewing. So we get everything in a kit 
And um, those usually cost between 30 and $50, but we're getting five gallons of beer, which equates to about 50, 50 beers um, out of that. So five gallons equals about 50 beers? Is that what I just heard? Yeah, somewhere in that, somewhere in that neighborhood. Sometimes, typically we plan to get two cases of beer, and, which is 48, and then we usually have two, three, maybe four left over um, that just kind of are floaters <laughs> until we find a place to stick them. But yeah, about fifty nominally, I guess. Okay, so a buy kit. What's what's kind of going to be in one of these basic kits? What are, what am I getting besides a carboy? So we we bought the deluxe kit from Northern Brewing, and I hate to give Northern Brewing too much of a plug. I I really I hate to say this, man. I really really like their stuff. They have really good uh, equipment kits, really good recipe kits with really good instructions. Unfortunately, we just found out that they are owned by Anheuser Busch Embev, which we thought they were some local little company up in Minnesota, Michigan, wherever the wherever the hell they are. Um, and we were a little disappointed to learn that they were owned by like some huge conglomerate. But anyhow, um, what's going to come in this kit is in that deluxe kit is two the two glass carboys that Kai talked about, which are basically giant glass narrow neck bottles. You're going to have a couple of airlocks that are going to permit that CO2 to escape that bottle so it doesn't build up too much pressure, but it's not going to let anything else back in. Uh, it's going to come with, you know, the bottle capper, all the siphon and tubing, a thermometer, basically everything you need to start brewing with the exception of a pot to brew in. You're going to need, I'm going to say like a three to five gallon, probably, probably not five gallon, probably like a four gallon giant stock pot. Something you'd use for a, like a low country boil or a crab boil or something like that, uh, which actually is where ours came from. Um, yeah, and that, that's pretty much it, man. You can save about 50% of that cost. Northern Brewing has their like more affordable kit. It's about half the cost, but instead of those two glass carboys, you do your fermenting in five-gallon plastic buckets, which, I don't know, we, we weren't thrilled with the idea of our stuff sitting around in plastic, uh, not so much for health reasons or whatever. It's just you don't get to see the process happen. There's a lot of activity that happens in that carboy, and just having glass, you can... Like the activity of the yeast actually creates its own currents within the within the carboy. You can get a gauge on like the color and clarity of your beer and, and all that stuff. So we chose to go with the glass, but if you're if you're on a, a tighter budget, they you can definitely go cheaper. Okay. Sounds good, man. So Northern Brewing, although we don't necessarily want to give them a plug, that that is a good entry level place to start. Uh, does it come with everything or is there anything that I may want to add on to what I get in those kits? Well, there's a couple little add-ons. Um, a hydrometer is, if you've ever heard the term gravity, as in like high gravity beer, meaning a high alcohol beer, mm -hmm. a hydrometer is the tool you use to measure the original gravity and the final gravity. And basically it's, it's a, you, a little tube, you put a little bit of your beer in, you float this little thing in it and it tells you this is your gravity now. You do that after the you do that before fermentation starts, and then you do it after fermentation's finished, and it lets you calculate the alcohol percentage of your beer. You may want one of those. I'll be honest, man, we still don't have one of those. We probably should. Everybody's gonna look down their nose at us now for saying we're brewers, <laughs> but don't have a blind. blind. Hmm. <laughs> um, there's clips to hold things. Like you have to move this beer around several times from like one carboy to another, and then from you know, the carboy to the bottling bucket. 
There's clips that can hold your siphon, clips that can uh, hold hoses in places when you're, you know, when you're transferring your beer and stuff like that. And I'll be honest, man, it takes, I don't know, probably 10 minutes to siphon five gallons of beer from one thing into something else. And just having, you wouldn't believe it, man, but that little $3 clip to hold that siphon in place is probably one of the most valuable tools we have, man, because it means someone doesn't have to stand there holding the thing the whole time. You can just clip it on there, let it do its thing. Uh, clips for your thermometer uh, to hold it in the pot while your boil's going. And like <laughs> these things really add up to big time savers. Uh, the one other thing you may want is a wort chiller because at the end of your brew process, you need to bring your wort down uh, which is wort is beer before it's fermented, like all the stuff added to the water and boiled into it, but it hasn't fermented and it's not beer yet. Um, once that boil comes off, you want to drop that temperature as quickly as you possibly can. And this is basically just a coil that you drop down into your pot that you run cold water through that, that cools that off. You can definitely get by without that. And we can talk about how to do that. But um, yeah, there's some other stuff you may want, but you can definitely make beer without and are not strictly necessary on that uh hydrometer I, before anybody uh, the listener looks down at you guys i'm gonna tell you um did you ever drink any red horse beer when you were in the philippines no i i mostly drank san miguel which we yeah. actually saw yesterday yeah we san miguel but well san miguel's a pretty good beer but they have uh red horse obviously is not sold here in the states because it, well at least in the late 80s when i was there they did not have a um, alcohol by volume statement on it as I understand it, it's not something that was controlled at their factory. So you may drink one red horse and be like, oh, okay, I feel great. And the next one puts you on your ass. <laughs> so if this major bottler in the Philippines that doesn't have a hydrometer to check their shit, I think we're okay here. <laughs> Probably so, yeah. <laughs> so where do we go now, man? So there's two major routes you can take. Um, all grain brewing or extract brewing. And we do extract brewing, which means... Instead of getting 10, 12, 15 pounds of grain and extracting all the sugar out of that ourselves, because the grain doesn't stay in the fermentation vessel, you basically just extract all the sugar out, and that's what the yeast eat. With extract brewing, you're going to get, uh, you know, six, maybe seven, maybe eight pounds of this really thick syrupy liquid, which is basically all that sugar has already been extracted from the grain which does two things for you. It makes this a much, much simpler process. It lets you do it with more basic equipment. It lets you do it, uh, brew more, much more quickly. And it's, it's massively more forgiving. Um, for example, with all grain brewing, you're just going to get a bunch of grain and your hops and your yeast, and you're going to have to extract everything out of it. And there's several more steps in the process, like watering and whatever else. You got to rinse the grain and all this other stuff which consumes a lot of water, takes up more space. And the recipes, I was talking about that resilience recipe um, for that beer from Sierra Nevada. It'll say something like, bring it up to 190 degrees and hold it at 190 for 20 minutes. And if you go two or three degrees above that, you're going to cause the heat to unlock other starches in there that are going to convert other things to sugars that are going to completely change the character of that beer. So all grain is very, very precise. It's, it's much more time consuming, much more labor intensive, and you need a lot more equipment 
people typically buy a propane burner and do this in their backyard um, rather than, you know, on the stovetop. You can do it on the stovetop through boil in a bag or some other processes that like boil in a bag that people have figured out. But extract brewing is probably where most people are going to start. And that's going to be, in a nutshell, get your water hot. They'll give you some whole grains that add flavor and character to the beer. You just steep those for a little while. Then you start at boiling. You stir in your extract, which is that thick syrupy liquid. You throw in your hops. You pour it in the carboy. And I'm simplifying. I'm leaving out a lot of minor stuff. And you put your yeast in there, and it turns into beer. Do you got, Kai, do you ever see your, you and Justin getting into all-grain brewing? I Yeah, I think we'd like to. We accidentally ordered a kit a couple weeks ago that came and was an uh, all-grain brewing instead of the extract brewing that we've been doing. Mm. And we seriously considered just jumping right into it, but then we took a look at our space, and we realized that would not be smart. So um, we are limited only right now by the amount of space we have. And I think ultimately that's we'd love to get into that and, and have a little more flexibility. But it's nice to start with the training wheels on, and, <laughs> and we're yeah. still making good beer out of it. So... Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice to have both options there. Awesome. So I know that you guys have this broken down into like different days for different things before we get into brewing day. Is there anything else we need to cover? Well, just, just quick talk about the consumables. So I really recommend two sources for this northernbrewing.com and brewersbestkits.com. I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. We've used kits from both places and honestly, most of our kits have come from Northern Brewing because, or Northern Brewer, I keep saying that wrong, just because we're familiar with their stuff. We know their kits are, it's going to have everything you need, nothing you don't. The, the, the instructions are going to be detailed. They're going to be precise. You're not going to be wondering like, well, how long do I leave this in? Very, very precise instructions. But we recently had to run out to a local home brewing store because we were out of bottle caps, I think. And we saw that they had kits from Brewers Best and we're like, let's grab one of these. It turned into one of our best beers yet, man. It was a Dunkelweizen and it was, it turned out phenomenally well. So uh, we've, I think we've done one more kit from them too, maybe, but strongly recommend both of those. That kit is going to contain your, um, your malt extract and like usually that's liquid malt extract, but sometimes it's dry. It'll be called like golden breeze or uh, whatever. It'll, it'll be this dry, powdery, really sweet, sugary substance, uh, or sometimes a little bit of both. We've done beers where we have, you know, a bottle of liquid malt extract and a bag of dry malt extract. Um, they will almost always have some whole grains, usually about a pound or two, probably not much more than that, your hops and your yeast. And yeast is kind of one of two types generally, ale yeast or lager yeast. And most home brewers are not going to make lagers. Again, with our space constraints, uh, we lager is not in our cards anytime soon because to make a lager, you have to lager that beer, which means let it sit at a consistent 50 degrees for I think about 30, maybe 45, maybe 60 days. Um, just maintaining that temperature because that's where that lager yeast likes to be at. With ale yeast, much more forgiving, much broader range of temperatures. You can have ale yeast, man, no matter what climate you live in, if you keep your beer indoors, you can make an ale. Right on, man. Okay. Uh, Kai, anything else before we jump into brewing day? Uh, No, that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, in looking at like the malts, um, 
you know, we described there being one liquid and one powder. The powder one um, is very similar to what, well, it is what you make like malted milk balls out of. So if people are familiar with that, that's a good reference point. Um, but like Whoppers, like that's what you're getting is basically the inside of a Whopper in a bag. Right on. Okay, what's next? Okay, let's get into the process here. So uh, day one is Brewing Day. Kai, do you want to talk about uh, Brewing Day? Um, so Brewing Day is, um, I don't know, how, how long does it usually take us? Like three or four hours from start to finish? I'd say probably about three hours from setup to clean up. Yeah, we just, we budget a lot of time. We've, we've made the mistake of trying to do this on a weeknight and we've been up until like midnight trying to get it done. So once you start, you can't stop. So we usually try to make a brewing day, a weekend day or a day that we've got a lot of time to play around with. And everything with beer brewing starts with sanitizing. We have to sanitize everything that we use, anything that's going to touch the wart, um, spoons, the thermometer, uh, the carboy, obviously, anything that's going to touch this beer has to be sanitized. So we spend a lot of time figuring out, um, again, like we have very limited space. So we have a sink um, and a bathtub that we use to make sure that we're able to fill things with water that we need to boil, but then also a place that we can sanitize. So um, if that's the same place for you, if that's the same sink, it's going to take a longer time. So we we utilize every <laughs> every water vessel in the house. So we use our sink and our bathtub to get this all done. Um, so we sanitize everything um, and we keep a separate bowl full or bucket full of sanitizer to the side in case things come up during the brew process, in case we drop a spoon on the floor, in case something happens, we've got a little a bucket that we can dip things in. And is there a sanitizer? Is there a sanitizer that you guys would recommend? or? So there's a couple different types. Um, I forget the brand on the first one. The first sanitizer that we've used is sort of a little, um, they're like little pellets. And um, it's a no-rinse sanitizer, which is nice. Um, but it is hard to get, you need to get all the pellets out of whatever it is that you're sanitizing. Um, the second one we've used, do you remember what that one's? Yeah, Star Sand. It's a... I don't like it because it's very soapy. And mm-hmm. I've also used another one. Uh, it's an iodine-based one, but if you get that on anything, it's going to stain, stain your counters, that sort of thing. So we haven't really found the perfect sanitizer, but there are sanitizers made specifically for brewing uh, that and kitchen, you know, like commercial kitchen sanitization that you should look into. And that that kit from Northern Brewing is going to come with enough sanitizer to probably do two or three batches of beer. Mm-hmm, but it's definitely something you don't want to run out of during the process because you, you, we use it at every stage. So um, that's where you start. You get everything nice and clean and ready to go. And then the first step in the brewing process is um, steeping the grains. So the grains that come with the kit, um, you'll put into sort of a sock or like a cheesecloth. And that basically becomes a giant tea bag that you steep for about 20 minutes, um, up to set 170 degrees and you make a big beer tea. (laughs) Yeah. Basically a big (laughs) pot of barley tea. Yeah. Um, and you'll like, you'll watch in the process, like you'll dump that thing in and a couple minutes later, there'll be a couple strands of like deep brown color emanating out of it. And then you'll come back 10 minutes later and you won't be able to see the bottom of the pot. It'll just be this rich red brown tea like i said so that'll sit that'll steep for 20 minutes i usually try to keep that 
definitely don't go over 170 degrees, but we try to get that to about 160 before we toss it in. We want enough heat to extract the flavor and the sugar out of that. And then we'll grab a strainer that's been sanitized. We'll scoop the bag out of there, drop it in that strainer and let any liquid run back into the pot before we throw it out. Um, so then once the grains have been steeped, we'll bring the pot to a boil and once it's at a hard boil, we'll stir in that malt extract following whatever instructions are in the recipe. Once that thing is back up to a boil again after it's stirring in the extract, that is almost, I don't think I've ever seen it be different. It's about a one hour boil. So you'll let that pot boil for an hour and then follow your instructions to the letter, which they will tell you at the you know, as soon as it's back up to a boil, throw in this type of hops. And all these hops are in different packets. They're clearly labeled. They'll tell you, throw in the whole pack at 60 minutes left to go in the boil. Throw in this one at 15 minutes left to go in the boil. And then throw in this one with five minutes left to go or something like that. Um, we've had brews that have had as many as four different hops in them. And they all have to be added at different times. So pretty much what we do on brewing day is once we're getting it back up to a boil, we'll throw on a movie, we'll set a timer, Whenever the time timer goes off, we'll go what do what we need to do at that stage and then move on. And there's a couple of things to consider here. You know, obviously we're following some timing triggers that have been set for different hops as we're adding them. Um, when we start our boil, we have the top on the pot, but when we start adding hops, we take it off because what sometimes happens is there's like a cap that develops on top of the liquid. And if you put another, if you put the top on the pot as that's boiling, it can create a situation where you've got a boil over and we've dealt with that a couple times and that wastes liquid and it wastes hops um, and it creates a big mess. So that's something we've sort of learned the hard way is to keep the top off the pot when you're, when you're at that point. And also, go ahead. I'm sorry. I just, so I understand and the listener understands. So while you're boiling it for one hour, the instructions are going to tell you at the 15 minute mark, add this kind of hops and at the 20 minute mark, add that. And, 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 and you're doing that throughout that one hour time. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. Okay. Uh, so it's you're not standing there for an hour watching that pot. We basically just set our timer. Hey, at this time, we've got to go add this hops. And sometimes it's other things you have to add. We've brewed beers that have like specific spices in them, like throw in the spices. We've brewed beers that will come with like a pound of brown sugar. And it'll be like, at this point, add a pound of brown sugar. Or at this point, add this pint of honey or whatever it is. So yeah, you're, you're basically read the whole recipe first before you start and know kind of what you're getting into for that, for that brewing cycle, I guess. Okay. So the hour goes by, we've added our ingredients. What, what, what's the next thing? So once that brewing process is completed, you need to cool that wort. So that liquid is now the wort. You have to cool that as quickly as possible for a couple of reasons. Um, one is the longer it stays warm, the more opportunity there is for bacteria to get in there and, and create an issue later in your brewing process. And then also you want that liquid to be cool because once you add um, the yeast to it, you want that yeast to thrive. And if it's too hot, that yeast will just die. Um, and then again, it'll create problems later in the brewing process. So if you don't have a wort chiller, which is something we talked about being an optional piece of equipment, what we do is we get bags of ice and fill up our bathtub or our sink, and we put that pot directly into that cold ice water. Um, so we'll mix water, ice, and some salt to keep it really, really cold. 
And so one of us will keep that water circulating and the other one of us will stir that pot of of um, wort and just try to bring that temperature down as quickly as possible. We've gotten it's it's labor intensive and but we've gotten it to a point where I think within 10 minutes we've got it from 212 degrees down to like 90. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's and it's sort of that's a mad dash. Um, And you want to make sure that you're not introducing any foreign liquid or objects into that pot because now you're working with this wart that's got to stay pretty much untouchable until you get the yeast in it. Now you're sort of protecting that product so that you don't create any situation where bacteria can create an infection or um, basically make your beer um, bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The other reason you need to get it cool is you're pouring it into that glass carboy. So you don't want to pour very hot liquid into that and risk cracking it or something like that. But you want to bring this down as quickly as you possibly can to about 90 degrees. And then at that point, we're going to take that sterilized funnel out of our bottling bucket full of sanitizer, throw that in the carboy, and we're going to pour. Usually we end up with about two and a half, three gallons in the brew pot because some of the liquid boils off. Um, And we're going to pour that into the carboy. And then we're going to add enough water to bring that up to about five gallons of beer. And we have a couple gallons of water in the fridge that we keep for just that purpose. It keeps the water cold, and we have we know we have two gallons in there to put directly into that carboy as soon as the wort goes in, and that gives us the volume of water we need, but it also cools the, the wort down even further because it's coming straight out of the fridge. So, um, again, lessons learned. <laughs> well, speaking of lessons learned, when we talk about water in this process, can I use just tap water, distilled water? Is there any kind of water that is better than another? Man, you and I must have been communicating telepathically on that one because I was about <laughs> to jump in with this. Um, you don't want to use water with any really heavy, like, chlorine taste or basically if, it, if it's got a heavy flavor like that, that's going to carry over into the beer and make it not good. But you also don't want to use distilled water. You need to have some minerals in that water and you probably don't need to add minerals or whatever, but uh, you don't want to use distilled water that has all the minerals taken out of it. So if your tap water comes out of a, your local well or something like that, knock yourself out. If you have like municipal provided water that's not super heavily chlorinated or whatever, you're probably fine using that. Uh, But if you, I don't know, live in Southern California and have water that smells like a swimming pool, then your beer's going to have some of those flavors carry over. If you do live in a place like that, man, spring water is like 99 cents a gallon at the grocery store. Why not just go buy five of those? Right. So I would imagine with all this cooking and baking and hops and all these other additives going in that that there's some smell involved how how, how do you guys like it how, what do your neighbors think about all, the, all that kind of stuff <laughs> we really like it it does smell like uh, like a, a grain soup it's it's a really rich warm smell um we've certainly heard horror stories from people um that have talked about hating the way that it smells, particularly when it comes to their spouses. They'll say that that's been a, you know, a huge, um, obstacle in them being able to homebrew. It's because their spouse hates the way that it makes the, uh, their spouse makes the, hates the way that it makes the house smell on brewing day. We, we really enjoy it. We'll, we'll brew and we'll take the dogs out for a walk and come back and have gone nose blind to it and walk back in the house. And it's this glorious, it fills the whole house up. We, we even had a, um, 
<laughs> we were those people that made the hall hallway smell like cooking smells. We, I think we've been doing pretty good with it, but the last weekend we were brewing, I guess we just got carried away because we went out in our hallway and the whole thing smelled like beer. So, I mean, we didn't hear any complaints. Yeah, but. T- tell your neighbors you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and in fairness, that, that is going to go away pretty quickly, especially if it's summertime and you can open up the windows or whatever. But your house isn't going to, if you're brewing, your house isn't going to smell like a brewery for the entire four weeks it's fermenting or whatever. It's basically on brew day. It's going to have a really strong smell. And then the next the next day you're going to go to work and come home and you're not even going to know anything mm-hmm. happened there. So, Justin, you just said, so we, we did brew day and then you mentioned fermentation. Is that next in the process, fermentation? Yeah, it is. So once you get your yeast into the car, or once you get your wort into the carboy or into your bucket or whatever, you're going to have to add that yeast. And like Kai said earlier, you want that yeast to flourish and it will only survive within a certain temperature band. So basically you can look on the packet that your yeast comes in and it'll say from 70 to 84 degrees or whatever. That's probably a pretty wide band. Um, You want to get it within that temperature range and then add it to your wart. And what I'll do with the carboy is because it has such a narrow mouth, I'll just clamp my hand over it. We'll tip it on its side and we'll just give it a really, really vigorous shape shake to get the yeast mixed in throughout that wart and make sure it's not just all floating on the top. And then we throw an airlock on it and then we wait. If you have a, if you're fermenting in a bucket, if you're using the five gallon buckets, I would say pitch your yeast and then take one of your sanitized spoons or something and give it a good vigorous stir to aerate it a little bit and get the yeast mixed in. But then fermentation starts and that yeast starts consuming that sugar and starts producing alcohol and CO2 as a byproduct. And it's pretty much just a situation of hurry up and wait at this point. And it's kind of neat. One of the things that we got in our initial beer kit were these little thermometer stickers that we stick on the side of our carboys so that you can clock the internal temperature without having to stick it um, thermometer into that mix and run the risk of contaminating it. So it goes on the outside of the the glass carboy, and then you can see what temperature... um, it is inside and that's pretty cool for one thing we're able to see okay this wart is at a temperature that's going to sustain this yeast it's not too hot um so we're we're safe to pitch the yeast into it um but then what's really cool is once the primary fermentation starts and there's all this activity in the carboy you can see the temperature rise um so we've had situations where we've had an empty carboy next to a carboy that's going through primary fermentation and the empty carboy is set at room temperature and the one next to it is at least five degrees if not 10 degrees more active because it's got all of this yeast that's eating and and processing all of the sugars and all of this activity that you can see um but it's being supported by this temperature that it's like it's reflective in the temperature, which is really neat to see. Yeah, those little animals, man, are just, there's so many of them moving around. I guess they're creating a, a temperature spikes. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a science project. <laughs> yeah, it is. So what's what's next, uh, uh, Justin? So basically just holding this at a relatively consistent temperature for two weeks. And I'll, I'll be honest, man, temperature has probably one of the single biggest effects on the outcome of your beer as far as external factors go. Um, I, White Labs makes a lot of the yeast that breweries and home brewers use, 
and I had the opportunity to visit their facility in San Diego several years ago. And White Labs, they, they have two tastings you can do. And in one tasting, they make all the ingredients, the temperature, everything exactly the same. But they make like five different batches using different yeasts. And you can taste like minor differences in the flavor characteristics based on the different yeasts that they use. The other tasting that they do is use 100% identical everything. And the only variation is the temperature. And it's like three or four degrees between each different batch. And that makes such a crazy difference in the taste of the beer. You, you can't even, I, I can't even describe it, dude. So being able to hold this at a consistent temperature is pretty important. And it also shouldn't be exposed to direct sunlight. We have our carboys sitting in our living room because we like to see them every day. We like to watch the process. Uh, and quite honestly, we live in a 750 square foot one bedroom apartment, so which should tell you you don't need a ton of space to do this. You don't need an industrial kitchen or anything to do this. So it is exposed to some light, but it's not. we have it in a place where it's shaded. It's protected from any direct sunlight. The UV would potentially kill that yeast. Uh, potentially alter the flavors, raise the temperature, do all sorts of potentially bad things. So we keep that out of the sunlight for sure. So once that two weeks has gone by, um, the first, I don't know, probably 72 hours, you're going to see just a constant bubble through that airlock. It's going to be just going nuts. Katie, you want to tell them what it sounds like? I know. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> They can see from themselves when they... <laughs> yeah. So it, you're going to constantly see bubbles, like just rapid fire for those first couple of days. And then it's going to die down to like maybe one bubble every second. And at the end of that two weeks, man, you're not going to see anything happening. So at that point... And what does that tell you? Well, that means most of the sugar in, has been consumed in there. So you're going to take your uh, siphon, you're going to sanitize it, you're going to sanitize your other fermentation vessel, be it your five-gallon carboy or your bucket... And you're going to rack that now beer from your primary fermentation into a secondary fermentation vessel. And you're going to let that sit for another two weeks. And that gives us a chance. First of all, in your primary vessel, you're going to notice this thick layer of just crud. Once you empty your beer off of it, it's going to look like the surface of the moon. It's this off-white looking stuff, a little pockmarks in it and... Sometimes you can see different layers in it. That's going to be dead yeast and spent, like just particulate matter that's in the thing, all settling to the bottom. Doing a secondary fermentation will leave that behind in the first carboy, and it will mean your beer has a chance to sit for a while not being on top of that. So if that has any inherent off flavors or like characteristics you don't want, it's got a couple of weeks to kind of sit somewhere other than sitting right on top of that. It also gives your chance, uh, your beer another chance to clarify a little bit for some more particulate, particulate matter to fall to the bottom. It gives a chance for the flavors to refine a little bit. And if you are going to do any additives like vanilla beans or coconut or whatever, you're probably going to add those in at this stage. And you're going to give this about two weeks, another two weeks to, to sit there. And this process is this process is much less active than the first one. The first one is just like wild chaos of yeast eating everything it gets its hand on. This one is much more sedentary. You'll get some bubbling in the airlock, but it not nearly as much as you get in that primary fermentation. It's a very chill process, the secondary. And we like that Dunkelweizen I was talking about earlier, man. Once we got that thing into secondary and got it off the crud at the bottom, 
that thing looked like five gallons of motor oil sitting there, mm-hmm. man. It was mm-hmm. so dark and black and beautiful looking. Um, man, it was just, this is a, a you're not going to notice any activity really at all happening during this stage. Okay. Where do we go now? Well, one thing with, uh, one thing with primary fermentation, like Kai said, it's super wild. It's, it's all kinds of stuff is all kinds of activity is occurring in that carboy. We have had a couple of blowouts, which basically means imagine this five gallon bottle or six gallon bottle, all this activity, all this like current is created in there and all these, this just a swirling liquid. And sometimes those spent hops that you've used in the brewing and whatever other matter gets pulled to the top. And sometimes a foam will develop. And sometimes these, you know, big pieces of hops are on top of that foam and it just gets pushed higher and higher and higher. And it can actually stop up the airlock. And when that happens, pressure will build. And then that airlock will get blown off the top, usually with some amount of force and we were in bed at four in the morning. We'd brewed the previous day. Kai wakes up or like sits up and it like kind of that active, that motion kind of woke me up and Kai goes, I think the beer just exploded. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> so we, we rushed in here in the living room and sure enough, man, that, that, uh, airlock was sitting about five feet away from the carboy. There was hops all up the side of the wall, basically because we hadn't kept an eye on this thing. Uh, And we had noticed it getting pretty, you know, a lot of foam on it the night before and hadn't really thought about it, but we had to do some immediate action to. (laughs) Well, and it was scary too, because we were literally just reading the day before about what ingredients in the process are good and bad for dogs. You know, with having three dogs in the area, we wanted to make sure we weren't putting them at risk. And and one of the things that they cannot have are hops in any form, spent hops. Um, it, they can't digest it and it can even just a little bit can be really bad for them. And now we've got hops painting the side of our wall. So we went into emergency, you know, uh, mode and had to get all of that off the wall, get all of that off the floor and sterilize something to put back into the carboy. So we could keep that, that liquid, um, protected so it was uh, a mad dash <laughs> oh boy but uh, honestly out of you know 10 batches we've done so far that's the only blowout we've ever had so mm-hmm. it, it's not as common a, an issue as you would think uh, and we don't know why that one did that but but it did so there you go <laughs> okay so that's fermentation now we're moving into bottling right yeah so you'll have brew day you will put your wort into your primary fermentation vessel, wait two weeks. You will rack it into a secondary fermentation, wait two more weeks. And then at the end of that two weeks, it's bottling day. And this is our, I don't know, this is one of the most interactive days you have with it. This is kind of fun for us. So before this day comes, you want to have your bottles pretty much ready. Um, This is a mistake we made the first couple of times we bottled is we thought, oh yeah, like we'll just wash some bottles real quick and throw our beer in it. And what we discovered is labels are hard to get off. There's a lot of, you know, factory beer productions put a lot of glue on those labels. And dude, we, man, we spent hours and hours and hours scrubbing labels off of bottles. And now we're at the point where we have like four or five extra cases of bottles. So any given bottling day, we just go grab two cases and we're good to go. But this is your first one and you're using beer bottles from the beer that you have drank get those labels off clean those bottles and uh another mistake we made 
is we're just like, oh, we're going to start brewing in a month. Let's start saving bottles. And we just dropped them back in the case with probably a tiny amount of beer in the bottom of them and right side up. So stuff fell into the bottles. They've got a little bit of beer in there. And basically we ended up with these big, looked like a big slimy, just gross. There's some funky shit in those bottles. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And it's hard to get out, man. We had a, I think we resorted in some cases to putting a little bit of bleach in all the bottles to kill everything, you know, get everything to loosen up its grip in there. It took forever. It's just, it's way easier, and it, it seems kind of time-consuming at the time, but way easier that if you are if you know you're going to save those bottles, rinse them out when you're done, put a little soap in them, shake them up, rinse them out, so that when they're going into your storage unit or wherever you're keeping them, um, and we store them upside down now just to let all that stuff run out, but it makes it so much easier on bottling day not to have to go through and clean out the little colonies of whatever have been residing in them for a month oh yeah so on bottling day we we put a towel on the counter we fill the sink up with water and sanitizer we basically just dunk all the bottles let them you know let them fill completely up with sanitizer and we'll put you know we'll put let's say 10 bottles in one side of the sink we'll put 10 bottles in the other side and then we'll start pulling those first 10 out we'll just drain them We'll stack them up upside down on the counter on that towel and let everything run out of them. And once we have 50, 55 bottles there, we're good to basically just the cycle of dunk them and fill them up, let them sit for maybe 60 seconds, drain them, and now we're good to go for bottling. The other thing you're going to have to do is make priming sugar. If you have a keg and a CO2 system and can carbonate your beer with that, then you don't need to worry about this step, but you're probably way ahead of us anyway, and you're probably not learning anything from us. So uh, for the rest of us, though, we, what is it, about a cup of water and five ounces of priming sugar. This comes in your kit. We'll bring that water to a boil. We'll drop our priming sugar in there and let it fully dissolve, and then we'll let it cool. Once we pull our beer from the secondary fermentation vessel into the bottling bucket, we'll dump that priming sugar in and give it a good stir and let it mix in throughout that wort. Basically, what that gives, what that adds is something for the yeast to consume. So once you bottle it and put a cap on it, now we're trapping those gases. So those yeast will eat that additional new, very controlled amount of sugar. And instead of just like flowing out of the top, all that carbonation will build up inside there, which actually carbonates your beer. Once you've added that priming sugar and stirred it into your bottling bucket, now you're going to actually start filling bottles. And Kai and I kind of have a workflow. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? So I, I t- spoke a little earlier about the uh, bottling bucket having a spigot on it. Um, something that makes the process even more um, refined is that on that spigot, we attach a little bit of tubing and a wand that has sort of a pressure um, tab at the bottom of it. And what that helps us do is um, we'll take a, bu- a bottle put that wand in the bottom of the, or all the way into the bottle and press the wand against the bottom of the bottle. And it releases that pressure tab that lets the, the beer flow into the bottle. And once we get it to the full point, we release that. So it, it makes it massively easier. We don't have a huge mess as we're bottling. We're not turning that spigot on and off. We leave the spigot on and that pressure tab helps keep the liquid in there until we need it to come out. And so um, we sort of have a process of I'll sit and and bottle the beer and then pass a bottle to Justin and he'll pop a, a top on it with our um, with the uh, the capper. 
Yeah, so once uh, once we've got all the bottles full and we've got them all capped, so basically I'll stand there, I'll keep feeding empty bottles to Kai, um, I'll cap the bottles. Her job takes a little bit longer than mine does, so she'll hand me a full bottle, I'll throw a cap on it, I'll throw the bottle capper on there and clamp that cap on, throw it in the case, and then push some more bottles over her way, and we just repeat that until we're done. <clears throat> and like I say, we'll usually get 50 maybe 52, 53 bottles of beer out of this. And, uh, and that's pretty much it, man. At this point, uh, you're going to want to label your beer. If, if you're only making one batch of beer ever, you don't need to worry about it. But if you're going to be banking multiple batches, especially we're basically on a six week cycle where every two weeks we brew, um, we rack, we bottle. So basically every week we have something to do and we have beer coming in like every two weeks. So, being able to see which, like pick up any given beer and be like, oh, this is this batch. It still has another week to go of bottling conditioning before it's ready is really, really important because if it doesn't have sufficient time to sit there and build up pressure, it's going to be flat, which is no fun. And this is kind of a horror story. We we have started collecting, buying beer based on what the bottle looks like. So we want to, we love a case of our home brewing having 10 different bottle shapes, different bottles with different markings on them and the glass etchings in the glass and stuff like that. So, uh, we've, we've been playing around with a bunch of different bottles and actually kind of buying beer based on what the bottle looks like. And one thing that we found is anchor bottles. Uh, the company that makes anchor steam, their bottles are really, really cool, very cool shape but they don't seal well with our caps. So we ended up with like six beers out of a batch that were just completely flat. And that sucks, man. Nobody wants to drink that beer. Is there any issues uh, other than that with the, the capping or the capper that you bought? Did it come with your kit or uh, any issues there? It came with our kit and it's pretty easy to use. What we do recommend though, is that you have to use bottles that have similar tops. Um, so no twist offs. We can't use any bottles that have twist off tops because they won't, they will definitely not seal well, but everything else. And, and, um, like Justin said, the anchor ones didn't work well, but everything else we've used has worked fairly well. Um, <laughs> something we do try to avoid is now that we've cleaned the labels off of so many bottles, we've learned which ones have a lot of adhesive and which ones don't. So they're definitely bottles that we avoid because of how much adhesive they use on their labels. So, um, <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, just anything that has like that sort of seal that you have to use, um, like a beer popper to get the top off. Yeah. You can't use your Bud Light bottles for this. Gotcha. <laughs> So we got brewing day, we got fermentation day, bottling day. What do we got now? Now we got tasting day. And this is the day that we, man, on the, like some other things, we might shift a day or two here or there. We might be like, ah, I don't really feel like bottling today. Let's do it tomorrow or whatever. This is the day we never miss, man. And this is six weeks after brewing day. And this is tasting day. So that day we're going to, that morning, we're going to put a six pack of these things in the fridge, let them get cold and crack them open and drink them. One thing you can expect here is your beer will probably get a little bit cloudy when you refrigerate it. We've made a couple of batches of beer that are crystal clear, just amazingly clear. But once you refrigerate that, uh, it causes some of that particulate matter in the beer to kind of cling together and it'll get a little bit hazy, nothing terrible. Our beer still looks good in a glass usually. 
uh, but expect it to get a little cloudy. That has no impact on taste. Um, and then you drink it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the and, most and wonderful the, time of the year. Oh, I bet, man. <laughs> and, and if the taste is a little off of what you were expecting, what, what do we do? Pour it out or what? I mean, it depends on how off. If it's if it tastes skunky, then then yeah. Or if it tastes flat, I don't think there's much that we can do once it's it's flat to to resurrect it. But we've certainly had beer that we feel like the flavor hasn't developed all the way. We recently did a, a Festivus brew, sort of a spiced uh, winter beer, and we popped the top on that, and we both sort of looked at each other across the room and and just weren't really feeling the taste of it and we left it um we left it sit for a couple more weeks and it really developed it lost a little bit of the bitterness it had and the spices and there was some orange peel in there really came together um and that was the jake ruins winter so he almost ruined it for real but (laughs) we salvaged it (laughs) i love that uh yeah what what are some of the other go ahead our motto for jake is jake ruins everything so jake ruins winter seemed like a natural fit for our winter ale (laughs) yeah now what are some of the other names of your uh you got is it yellow dog jake ruins winter what is it yeah we a lot of our beers tend to be named for the dogs um the dunkel that we talked about being that was a really good beer um that's dead bird dunkel that's named for ralph's breath (laughs) (laughs) oh god um, we've got a we've got a porter that we named Tinkle Pig uh, Porter that was named after Pepper because of her tendency to uh, tinkle a little bit in the floor when I raise my voice at all. <laughs> like even even sometimes we're talking about someone else and like doing an angry voice like, and then he said this and she'll just get freaked out by any kind of disturbance in the force. But that's another that Tinkle Pig is another good example of a beer that took some time to smooth out. It was a honey porter. Uh, I think it had a couple pounds of honey in it in addition to everything else. And we added two vanilla beans to it, wanting to make a vanilla porter, kind of like Breckenridge Brewery's vanilla porter. And when we opened it at six weeks, it was good. We actually had a party and had some people over and like people drank it and enjoyed it. And we enjoyed it. And we had a couple six packs that we kind of overlooked as other stuff started to, to be ready. And it was, I don't know, probably two months later, we're like, oh, we still have this many tinkle pigs left let's throw them in the fridge and dude like that extra time to sit in the bottle those beers are so freaking good we've Mm -hmm. got two of them left that we're trying to hang on to and every day they just look at me like drink me (laughs) (sighs) i wonder if i wonder if they're uh peaking at some point and they'll eventually start the taste will start to decline or they just i mean surely they don't just get better forever and six months from now they're just gonna be totally awesome or what (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no, you're you're definitely right about that. I don't know what the I don't know what the time on that is because we have, man, almost every batch we've made, we've drank every bit of it. So the the old story of, I, I'm sure you've heard this thing like once beer gets cold, you're not supposed to let it get warm again. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the reason for that is is bottle conditioning, like we do, uh, and most factory beers, you're fine letting it get cold, then letting it get warm again, then getting it cold again, there's going to be no issue with that because they carbonate that beer through a carbonation system rather than live yeast making that happen. But if you're making your own beer and doing bottle conditioning, you throw those in the fridge and then you're like, ah, we don't like these and pull them back out. That yeast reactivates and starts to like come alive again, go out of its dormancy or whatever. Um, and that's what has the potential to cause those skunky flavors or off flavors. So yeah, um, 
once it's in the fridge, it's pretty much suspended in time, probably to a point. And we haven't had any, we don't have anything that's over like three months old okay. right now. So before we get into some of the common things that go wrong with pe- people's stuff, is there anything else on tasting day we need to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. You think of anything? No, I think that's it. Yeah. All right. Tell me what can go wrong, man. If I'm going to start this, what, what, what can I expect to screw up? Uh, I don't think there's a whole lot, man. Um, but there are a handful of things. So infections are something that every brewer fears because, you know, there's a big amount of waiting around in this and you have to wait six weeks to find out that something went wrong in the process in some cases. So, um, basically with your wort, you're creating this very sugary, very warm liquid. And that is this awesome place for bacteria and other organisms to really, really thrive. Generally, your primary fermentation, the yeast are going to be so active in there and just so dominant that nothing else can really gain a foothold. But if you're doing additives like in a secondary fermentation, now I'm taking this beer that's almost beer. It still has some sugar in it for sure. I'm going to put some other ingredients in it that may not be sterilized, may have, you know, microbes, bacteria, whatever on them. And I'm dropping this into this carboy. There's a potential for something to go really bad there. So uh, if that happens, your beer is generally going to taste awful and you're going to end up dumping out five gallons of sweet, sweet, beautiful, Mm. otherwise perfectly good beer. uh, But just because you didn't sanitize it well enough and something, something went wrong. Sounds yeah, you have, to put your, you have to put yourself in a position to succeed. So all of that sanitizing that's done in the first couple stages um, is well worth it. It, it. I think we've, you know, it's always a, a concern in the back of your mind. But if you're doing everything the way you should be doing it, it's not going to be a problem. Okay. What, what other things could go wrong here? Well, blowouts are potentially a problem, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, that stopper just filling up with particulate matter and getting popped off and now your beer is overflowing out on the floor and whatever. Not as common as you would think, but this is probably the most common one of these uh, there is. The other potential problem is bottle grenades. And I talked about that priming sugar and how we stir it really, really well in the wort because let's say you just pour it on top and it all floats on top or most of it does and you get a disproportionate amount of sugar into let's say 10 bottles of your 50 bottles of beer that's going to be enough sugar for the yeast to eat and eat and eat and create enough CO2 to actually explode that bottle. So then you've got an exploded bottle. Hopefully it's in a box or something, but you've got beer all over the floor and you've just wasted X amount of beer. And as a, also as a result, the rest of your bottles probably don't have enough sugar to adequately carbonate. Um, so you want to make sure that priming sugar is mixed in really, really well. Um, anything else that could go wrong, Kai? No, I think that's it. And I mean, those sound like horror stories, but if you're doing everything, like we said, if you're doing everything you're supposed to do, um, if you're following the steps and then there's really no risk. And we did have that one blowout, but, um, that was sort of an anomaly. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else on the, uh, the bottle grenades, if you're still with us and you're not scared to death now, uh, (laughs) I think that that sounds pretty rare, but, um, Anything else, Justin, before we go into the book of the week? I mean, those things aren't going to explode like a hand grenade. Basically, that bottle is just going to burst. If it's inside a cardboard box, it's it's all going to be contained in that box. But uh, except maybe if the top's open, like a bo- the top of the neck of a bottle might fly up in the air or something. But um, 
you can easily avoid that. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think so, man. Let's, let's go to it. All right. Hit me. All right. Cooked by Michael Pollan. This is one book I'm surprised I haven't used as the book of the week yet, because if there's one book that I've probably bought for more people, it's this one. I've probably bought this book for half a dozen different people and sent that to them or given them a copy or given them one of my copies or whatever. Um, and as you know, I'm a big Michael Pollan fan and I, I feel like I hit his books just about every other episode, but in this book, he looks at, as I mentioned earlier, he looks at those four different elements, fire, water, air, and earth. And in the fire episode, he goes deep in the weeds of how man, how, how humankind has for millennia cooked meat over an open fire and how it's different from cooking in an oven and how some cultures are still really clinging to this. And he spends a lot of time in North Carolina going around to traditional barbecue places. And I don't know if you know the origin of barbecue, but it was basically a way for Southerners to take feral hogs that are typically very tough and not very palatable and cook them very slowly over low heat for a long period of time and make that meat tender and tasty. Uh, He spends a lot of time with that. He spends a lot of time with this guy in San Francisco that owns a bakery, this guy that owns a bakery called, uh, I think it's uh, Tartine, learning to make sourdough bread and how air, uh, the introduction of air into food like that completely changes its nature. He talks about uh, braising food, and that was probably, honestly, the least interesting chapter to me, though it was very interesting still. And then finally, Earth, where he talks about uh, microbes fermenting stuff and turning it into something different, uh, like like uh, sauerkraut. That's where I learned to make sauerkraut. Uh, he also makes mead during the process of that, which was the first thing I ever, the first drinkable beverage I ever fermented for myself. And I think a lot of people start with mead. I think it's very popular because literally all you do is take honey, mix water into it, and then put yeast in it and let it ferment. Uh, kind of, I find that we don't really care for the taste of mead, so we don't do that. But uh, that's what got me into uh, into fermenting beer, ultimately into making beer. You know, we brought some mead back from, we went to an open-air market in Scotland last year and um, brought some mead back, and uh, I think we still got a little bit of it. And it was almost like a wine. It wasn't like a, a beer. It was like a wine. Have y'all ever had that? Well, I, I think that's literally what m- mead is supposed to be. It's uh, honey wine. It's yeah. it's frequently called. And um, I have made meads. I, I made a bunch of mead for a while, trying different fruit combinations and spice combinations and mixing it with cider and stuff like that. And I've carbonated it. I've made it still. I've made it sweet. I've made it dry. Um, it, it is very, very similar to wine, yes. Yeah, I did not know that. I, I was thought it was more like a beer but uh anyway really enjoyed that and there was some monks i guess that made it and they were really passionate about the meat and it tasted good so we brought a bottle back and have it on occasion uh so anything else on the book of the week uh i don't think so man i i probably couldn't recommend this any more strongly one of my favorite books ever sweet i don't know i don't think we've ever have we ever had kai take us out i don't know Kai, what we're going to today? <laughs> we're going to? Is that what's happening? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Take us out, Kai. 
Oh, man. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to Across the Peak today. Um, we've got a ton of extra content, show notes, additional articles, um, how-tos available on acrossthepeak.com. So go check that out. Also, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Across the Peak. Um, if you want some awesome ATP swag, like Rich said earlier, there is a store. The link is on the acrossthepeak.com website. Um, also, don't forget to tell your friends um, about Across the Peak. We want to reach everybody. We want to expand this network. So um, please make sure that you are sharing and spreading the word. And until next week, remember, um, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. You've been listening to the Across the Peak podcast. Be sure to visit acrossthepeak.com for show notes and bonus content. Until then, be safe. And if you can't be safe, be dangerous. Be dangerous.